gentlemen, may I welcome you here this evening. Astonishing turnout for this debate this evening on Magna Carta, Christianity and the future of liberty. Some extremely topical subjects. And I apologise if I myself appear a bit red in the face. That's because, not because I've been sunning myself on some Spanish beach, but I've been in Runnymede um, this morning. And despite the fact there seemed to be a marked absence of sunshine, all those who were there seem to have gone away uh, well marked by the sun's effects. We are delighted to have this evening three really distinguished speakers to participate. Firstly, Nick Spencer, Research Director for Theos, author of a number of articles, reports and books on religion, public life and the history of ideas. Most recently, Atheist, The Origin of the Species and Freedom and Order, History, Politics and the English Language. Currently doing a part-time doctorate at Cambridge University on a theological critique of the proper function of the state, something which I shall undoubtedly be reading when it uh, emerges. <laughs> Secondly, Professor Julian Rivers, Julian's Professor of Jurisprudence at the University of Bristol Law School, where he's been teaching legal theory and public law for over 20 years. Main research interests in human rights and legal reasoning, the relationships between law and religions. And in 2010, he published The Law of Organised Religions Between Establishment and Secularism with the Oxford University Press, founding editor-in-chief of the Oxford Journal of Law and Religion. And I know from having participated in events with him in the past that he will have a great deal of interesting things to say. And finally, last but not least, Elizabeth Berridge, uh, Baroness Berridge, barrister, previously in charge of the CCF, and now, since 2011, a member of the House of Lords and a, a member of the Metropolitan Police Ethics Committee and co-chairman of the International Free, uh, 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 of the Committee on International Freedom of Religion and belief. So ladies and gentlemen, you might like to give a round of applause at the beginning. <laughs> now, the format this evening is that I'm going to invite the speakers to speak for 10 minutes each and hope that they will stick to that. I will not won't be too horrible to them if they overlap a little bit, but I may sort of gently bring them to order if they speak for too long. And I am going to ask Nick Spencer to speak first, uh, Julian Rivers second, and Elizabeth last. We will hope that that will then take us to about approximately 7.50, 7.55. And at that point, uh, we can uh, open up for a panel discussion. And I, my experience of these uh, events is that the panel discussion is by far the most interesting part of the evening. <laughs> So we will keep that going for as long as you want, or 8.30, whichever shall be the sooner. And at that point, we can adjourn for drinks and refreshments. So without any more ado, I will invite Nick Spencer to speak first and uh, to give us his views on this particular topic. Nick. Thank you very much indeed, Dominic. And it's just, if there's anyone still waiting, and there's a few seats there, so if anyone come and sit down rather than kind of be forced to stand, now's the time to do so. Um, Actually, Nick, Nick, before you start, I think, I think on the basis of our timings that the uh, demand I was told to place on you of 10 minutes, I think, is shorter than it need be. And I think as long as you don't exceed 15, we will keep within the time and still allow for the discussion and conversation. I hope that's helpful. There's, there's no danger of me exceeding 15 now. 
Tony Hancock has had a very good year indeed. The comedian died 47 years ago, but he has been widely quoted this year as one of our greatest and most sophisticated commentators on the document whose birthday, whose 800th birthday we're celebrating today. For those of you who are not familiar with the episode, and I suspect most of you will be now, Hancock's Half Hour, our hero is the foreman of an unruly jury, and he's trying to guide and inspire them with the deep and profound principles of British justice. He stands before them and says, does Magna Carta mean nothing to you? Did she die in vain? <laughs> Brave Hungarian peasant girl who forced King John to sign the pledge at Runnymede and close the boozers at half past ten. There's something wonderfully appropriate about Hancock's creative ignorance. After all, the events that led up to Runnymede 800 years ago were not as noble or as principled, not as noble or as principled or as inspiring as subsequent generations, including ourselves sometimes, like to imagine. Indeed, the whole tale could be told as one of accident circumstance, self-interest, intransigence, and persistently low principle. The basic story is reasonably well known. King John was, by all accounts, a dreadful man and a dreadful monarch. He was endlessly hungry for money, first to maintain and then to recapture his lands in Normandy. Moreover, he was thoroughly unprincipled in the way he raised it. His taxation policy was brutal and arbitrary and it paid little regard for due process or for custom or for basic principles of fairness. On the other side, we have the barons. The famous barons who were hardly paragons of decency and public interest themselves. They were not just in case we imagine otherwise interested in putting together an early draft of the UN Declaration <laughs> of Human Rights. They wanted primarily to protect themselves against a monarch who was unscrupulous and vindictive, even by the high standards of the age. I was reading through some of the coverage today of the various different Magna Carta celebrations that have been going on, and somebody from Amnesty International was critiquing David Cameron for his speech at Runnymede today, and I'm sure we're going to be talking about this later on, and the, and, the, and the person from Amnesty International said the barons would be spinning in their graves at Cameron's proposal to leave the European Convention of Human Rights and to replace it with the Bill of Rights. Well, quite frankly, the barons couldn't give a monkey. <laughs> I'm afraid that is an unpalatable truth. So we have the king, we have the barons, but at least, at least we have the church standing in the midst of this sordid power politics, wielding the sword of justice with the fearlessness of Christ himself. Alas, not. <laughs> the Pope at the time was the, perhaps ironically named, Innocent III, perhaps the supreme papal monarch of the Middle Ages. 
He didn't like King John, to be sure. Indeed, he excommunicated the king and placed the whole country under interdict for six years, which was something like the nuclear option in the consistent battles between empire and papacy in the High Middle Ages, and that effectively prevented the church from performing any of its duties. But that wasn't really because he disliked John. It was more because he and John disagreed over who should appoint and who should be the next Archbishop of Canterbury. When the king finally folded and made a tactical retreat, Innocent became one of his staunchest allies. He declared England a papal fiefdom, which John then subjected to papal authority and papal protection. Very smart chess move. And then a little later on, Innocent went on, a few months after the day we're celebrating today, to annul Magna Carta on the technically correct grounds that it was sealed under compulsion. The Archbishop of Canterbury, at least, does come out of this story a little bit better. He was a leading biblical scholar at the University of Paris, and he defied both the king and, on occasion, the pope, earning himself exile in the process. He probably didn't draft the charter as earlier scholars imagined, but he did contribute to its formation as well as serving as an intermediary between the different parties. So that view, very brief view of king and barons and church, explains why clause 33 of the Great Charter of England reads, all fish weirs shall be removed from the Thames <laughs> and the Medway and throughout the whole of England except on the coast. And clause 47 reads, all forests that have been created in our reign shall at once be disafforested. Clause 6 says, heirs may be given in marriage, but not to someone of lower social standing. And clause 21 says, earls and barons shall be fined only by their peers. And clause 35 says, there shall be standard measures of wine, ale and corn throughout the kingdom. Magna Carta is a document born of time and place and circumstance and pragmatism. Except that Clause 38 says, no official shall place a man on trial upon his own unsupported statement without producing credible witnesses to the truth of it. Clause 39 says, no free man shall be seized or imprisoned or stripped of his rights or possessions except by the lawful judgment of his peers or by the law of the land. And clause 40 reads, to no one will we sell, to no one deny or delay right or justice. And the subsequently abolished clause 61 says, the barons shall elect 25 of their number to keep and cause to be observed with all their might the peace and liberties granted and confirmed to them by this charter. And why? The language of extending these rights to all free men pervades Magna Carta. In other words, for all the low pragmatism behind the Great Charter, there were some pretty high, arguably some unprecedentedly high principles within it. We might call this the law of unintended consequences, except for the fact they were partially intended. 
Take the question of due process in Clause 39, for which Magna Carta may be best known. The biblical scholars in Paris, especially Stephen Langton, have been preoccupied with this question. How far should Christians be subject to governing authorities? Even the most conservatively minded scholars at the time agreed there were some lines over which a monarch or an emperor should not step, such as forcing a subject to deny Christ. So what were those lines? And perhaps more alarmingly, what were people entitled to do if the governing authorities pushed them too far? Langton and others drew heavily on the Old Testament book of Deuteronomy, particularly Deuteronomy chapter 17, in which it's legislated that the king shall have a copy of the law placed in his hand and shall read and inwardly digest and not consider himself over the law. In other words, these basic principles that the king was under the law can securely be dated back to the Torah in the Old Testament, at least in theory, of course. The reality was always very different. By drawing on the book of Deuteronomy and other scripture, Langton and others argued that the king needed to be, had to be, placed under law and that only lawful action was right action. These were live debates in the universities of Europe at the end of the 12th into the 13th century. They are the soil in which Magna Carta grows. We'll take the extension of rights language to all free men. At this point, I want to pay tribute to two people. One is my colleague, Tom Andrew, who wrote the report that you should have found on your seat when you came in. Tom did a superb job in analysing, compressing and articulating some highly complex narratives into a really uh, accessible and readable format. He's the real expert on Magna Carta and he is here tonight. So if you have further questions that I can't answer, I'll be deflecting them to Tom. I also want to mention Larry Siddentop, who very kindly wrote the foreword to the report and whose own book, published last year, Inventing the Individual, The Origins of Western Liberalism, was, I know, very important and very helpful to Tom in writing the report. And the reason I mention this is Inventing the Individual is a very fine piece of intellectual archaeology, if you like, and it shows how it was the intrusion of certain ideas concerning the worth of the individual ideas that were deeply rooted in Christian thought that allowed the development of our ideas of freedom and what we would now call human rights. Ideas that we very often mistakenly trace only back to the 18th century and not before. The fundamental idea, as Larry Siddentop puts it, that Christ reveals a God who is potentially present in every believer that was a game changer. Thereafter, for all that it took an unconscionably long time to work out, the idea that every individual had inviolable worth, which wasn't contingent on their ability or their circumstance, that idea was always waiting in the wings. Siddentop emphasises that much of this development with regards to the idea of what we would now today call rights, is subject to this law of unintended consequences. Canon lawyers in the 12th century were more interested in protecting the church 
than in inventing the individual. But they did. It's a law that just keeps on appearing. The great church councils that eventually settled the great schism of the 15th century when Europe endured two and then at one point three popes, they were not especially interested in elevating electors over whom they elected, but that was a consequence of their thinking. The reformers who translated the Bible into the vernacular in the late 15th and early 16th centuries were certainly not intending to undermine royal authority. Quite the contrary, in fact. The early magisterial reformers elevated royal power to previously unprecedented heights. And there's a glorious irony if you start reading some of the Puritan writers at the end of the 16th century when they find themselves having to justify civil civil disobedience, drawing very surreptitiously on Roman Catholic writers of the previous century because they didn't have a tradition themselves. A fascinating example, someone like William Tyndale, who is responsible more than any other figure for the English Bible we have today. Tyndale was a thoroughgoing political authoritarian. His one book of political theology was called The Obedience of a Christian Man, and it pretty much did what it said on the tin. Anne Boleyn is supposed to have handed a copy to Henry VIII who remarked this is a good book for Christian princes to read and indeed it was because it said under no circumstances even under the point of death should you resist political authority. But at the same time William Tyndale translated the Bible and swore to a priest in Gloucester at the time that if God give me breath I will make sure that the ploughboy knows more of Holy Scripture than you do. Now, in actual fact, that wasn't happened to boast. We know quite a lot about the biblical knowledge of Gloucester scholars and clerics in the 15th century. It wasn't very much at all. But the point was putting the scriptures in the hands of everybody in an accessible vernacular format and telling them to read and inwardly digest was the most radical act of political and social decentralisation that could possibly happen. In that regard, Tyndale the evangelical undermined Tyndale the political theorist. Again, the law of unintended consequences. The sectaries who dragged the British Isles into the Civil War in the 17th century were amongst the least tolerant people who ever governed this country. And yet it was from their mutual theological disagreements that the principles of ecclesiastical and political toleration first emerged on a principled basis. Repeatedly, unintended consequences emerge from the mess and chaos of circumstance. And so it is with Magna Carta. A document rightly praised for, in Barack Obama's words, laying first, uh, first laying out the liberties of man without ever really intending to do so. Let me leave you with two very brief concluding thoughts. I think there's a theological explanation for this. As St Paul put it at one point, humans are jars of clay, weak, fragile and often rather chipped and dirty. But we're given a treasure which is none of these things and which somehow persists and works for the common good even when we do not. As Paul put it elsewhere, the spirit helps us in our weakness. And the second concluding thought. This tale of unintended consequences might give us pause to reflect. What are the causes and the cases today that appear selfish or self-interested 
or pragmatic or unprincipled, indeed, that may even be all those things, but which in years to come might have generated goods and freedoms that our descendants take for granted. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. That was a superb introduction to this evening's uh, presentations. And I will now ask uh, Julian to go second. So this evening I'd like to say a few words about Magna Carta and the significance of the freedom of the church today. Because as we all know, or should know by now, Magna Carta starts and finishes with a grand flourish. A promise that the English church shall be free and shall have its rights undiminished and its liberties unimpaired. Whatever that meant at the time, or perhaps was variously taken to mean by successive generations of lawyers and churchmen, Historians agree that it had precious little to do with what we now understand as religious liberty. In the words of that great charter of modernity, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, religious liberty, we think, is the freedom, either alone or in community with others, and in public or private, to manifest religion or belief in teaching, practice, worship, and observance. But Magna Carta has always been as much an enduring cultural symbol as a working legal text. And this clause about the freedom of the English church is, I would suggest, more symbolic than most. So it's not inappropriate to reflect on whether the freedom of the church has any significance for us today. We might try to tackle that question first by teasing out the ideological impact of Christianity on our political traditions. And notwithstanding the cautions of historians, there is some causal relationship between the Magna Carta of history, the real Magna Carta, and the enjoyment of liberty under law today. In his magisterial work, Law and Revolution, the legal historian Harold Berman argued that Western political culture is characterized by a series, a succession of revolutions. The first and greatest revolution was the Gregorian reform of the 11th century. This established the Christian church as a legal system standing in perpetual tension with royal and other subordinate secular authorities. Uh, into that story of tension between church and royal government, we can place the martyrdom of Thomas a Becket, privilege of clergy, the free appointment of bishops, and Magna Carta. In more general terms, the atheist French philosopher Luc Ferry points to Christianity's humanism, its insistence on the equal dignity and worth of every human person, and its validation of the material and the concrete, the this-worldly, through the doctrine of the resurrection. The German sociologist Jürgen Habermas agrees that our modern egalitarian universalism has its origins in Jewish and Christian ethical monotheism. 
The political theologian Oliver O'Donovan has argued that the legacy of Christendom is the generation of liberal society, characterized by freedom to seek the good, mercy in judgment, natural equal rights, and openness to speech. Rodney Stark writes of four historic victories in Christian theology, of faith in progress, technical and organizational creativity, political freedom, and the application of reason to commerce. There are many others who have done a similar exercise. Such stories of our cultural values, the origins of our cultural values, are illuminating, but they are not in themselves normative. To what extent is the cause of liberty under law still bound up in the freedom of the church? I suggest that we should look not so much at Christianity as a source of what we now call human rights values, but at the Christian church as a stimulus, or possibly even a provocation, to the generation of a free society. At least four features of the church are relevant to this. And I use just four words here. Value, relationality, order, and authority. Let me unpack these. Value. In its idea of God, the Christian Church stands for the objective existence and unity of value. There really are such things as truth, goodness, and beauty. They cohere with each other, and the pursuit of these values is supremely worthwhile as a human calling and as a participation in the life of God. Relationality. In its idea of a triune God, the Christian Church stands for the importance of human beings in relationship with each other. The importance of communities of belief and practice. Our human calling then is to pursue truth, goodness and beauty in conscious mutual interdependence on each other. In short, to pursue them in love. Order. In its idea of a God who creates and sustains the universe, the Christian Church stands for the ordered pursuit of human values in community. There is a type of law here, which stands in contrast to the law of the state or the imperatives of the market. One might also add that in the history of the Christian Church, we find replicated exactly those tensions and resolutions between top-down organization and bottom-up legitimation, characteristic of all well-ordered societies, from modern states and multinationals to universities and sports clubs. Authority. In its idea of a God who calls each person into obedience to himself, the Christian Church stands for the existence of a higher claim than the pressures of self-indulgence, the iron grip of profit maximization, or any reasons of state. Civil liberty comes into being because individual men and women are willing to challenge the powers of their day, to be quiet revolutionaries. That is the significance of the Western tradition of revolution. And that will not happen unless they have a foundation on which they can stand. Value, relationality, order, and authority. Of course, these features are not the sole preserve of the Christian Church. We find them reflected in many other religious and philosophical traditions and expressed in a superabundance of civil society organizations, our universities, 
our professions, many of our charities share that significance. What I have called here the freedom of the church is rightly enjoyed by all forms of human interaction that share its character. Here's the key point. The cause of a free society depends upon the autonomous flourishing of a plurality of institutions which embody the ordered collective pursuit of fundamental human values. That's my thesis, if you like. The cause of a free society depends on the autonomous flourishing of a plurality of institutions which embody the ordered collective pursuit of fundamental human values. And we should not be surprised if in each generation there are different and difficult tensions between these multiple institutions as they come into conflict with each other, as well as with the two great authorities of our time, the state and the market. That process of social contestation and renegotiation is the precondition and the hallmark of a free society. It has often been said that the church has many critics, and in many cases justified critics, but that it has no rivals. And I would suggest that this maxim is true when it comes to the creation and sustenance of a free society as well. In its breadth of concern for all aspects of human flourishing, in the depth of its commitment to human community, in the self-governing nature of its organization, and in the strength of the authority it claims to bear witness to, the church is unsurpassed as a social phenomenon. The extent of its freedom in any society is a measure of the freedom of that society as a whole. It is indeed the first freedom. That, I would suggest, is the political significance of the church even today. Now, in a moment, Elizabeth will be saying a few words, I know, about the global challenges to religious freedom that we still face. But before I close, I'd like to draw attention to our own very British collective religious liberty clause. Section 13 of the Human Rights Act 1998 says this. If a court's determination of any question arising under this act might affect the exercise by a religious organization, itself or its members collectively, of the convention right to freedom of thought, conscience and religion, it must have particular regard to the importance of that right. Like the opening clause of Magna Carta, section 13 is rather vague and general. Like Magna Carta, it has so far proved to be of more symbolic than practical value. But our legislatures and our courts are increasingly struggling with difficult questions of the boundaries between religious liberty and secular law. Like Magna Carta, this section reminds them and us of the importance of the freedom of the church to the cause of civil liberty even today. One can only hope that whatever the fate of the Human Rights Act as a whole, the principle that it expresses will enjoy an equally long life. Thank you very much. Firstly, I'd just like to thank Julian very much for that uh, presentation. And now we have a minor hiccup, because as you will have noticed, there is a division in the House of Commons. And I will have to absent myself for Elizabeth's part of Elizabeth's talk, Traffic. which is, is, is indeed very uh, regrettable, uh, particularly as I'm chairing the meeting. And perhaps somebody else 
I don't know, actually, you might be able to manage without anybody chairing the meeting for 10 minutes because you'll have Elizabeth speaking to you instead, and so I'm sure that everybody else will be perfectly well behaved during that her talk, as long as she's not too controversial. Will you therefore please excuse me, and I shall try to be back in about 10 minutes. Thank you. Elizabeth, over to you. Thank you. Well, we have just finished business in the Lords for this evening. Um, I want to thank, first of all, Theos for the invitation to come here this evening and to Dr Nick Spencer and Professor Julian Rivers for their illuminating talks. But um, if any of my colleagues are here and are wondering where all the recent books are that, from the House of Lords Library on this subject, they are indeed on my bookshelf at the moment. And I really want to pay tribute to people such as Mark Cook QC and my colleague Lord Judge, who when I'd read their books were kind enough to sit down with me and answer some of the questions. The reason I was invited to give this talk this evening was because I co-chair the all-party parliamentary group on freedom of religion or belief. Quite a mouthful that, so our website is known as freedomdeclared.org. Now Magna Carta has suffered what I would say is called the disease of tenuous connections. So many good things have tried to be linked back to it that it rather stretches credibility. But I do hope to show you this evening that the principle behind Chapter 1 of the Magna Carta is connected to the principle of Article 18 of the Universal Declaration on Human Rights and is connected to today's religious persecution. But of course, in the 13th century, there were major factors in play in that period of history, such as Europe, money, and religion. And so not a lot has changed, actually, and they were all actually interconnected. But if we look Firstly, at chapter one of the Magna Carta, and I have deliberately put there um, in a different colour for you, that the English church shall be free. But you cannot know from what it should be free from unless you look perhaps in a little more detail at the religious and historical context. Besides a Jewish population at that time in England who would be expelled later on that century, England at this time is basically a nation, a few kind of problems on the Welsh and Scottish border still, nothing changes, um, but it's still basically Christian. The Nordic beliefs that came in have gone, and England actually is, let's pause for a moment, it's Catholic. Cardinal Nichols is the Archbishop of Canterbury. It's pre-Reformation, and the church is a huge part of life. You cannot marry without the church, and being excommunicated for an individual was a huge calamitous effect on your social standing. It probably affected your employment and, in effect, may have made you an outlaw. And basically, the structure of society, as is outlined in the Charter, is you have the king, you have the freemen and the cities, and you have the church. So any notion of separation of powers is really to do with the jurisdiction between the king, uh, his barons, and the church. And since the time of Thomas a Becket and maybe before, there has existed that tension between the jurisdiction of the church, where does that end, and where does the jurisdiction of the state begin? Especially as kings, by way of their sheriffs and their judges at that point, have increasingly performed a direct judicial function. And also, by way of analogy, we have a similar problem on the European uh, continent with the temporal Holy Roman Emperor, contradiction in terms mainly there, and a Pope who, when he was appointed, used Jeremiah and said, I have been set above the nations. So it's not surprising that there's some kind of confusion reigning as to who actually ultimately appoints church personnel. So after the terrible defeat in France in 1203, King John needs money, and he's confiscating lands, as Dr. Spencer outlined. 
And he's also quite cleverly leaving vacancies in appointments in the church, particularly abbots, because the revenues from the, the vacancies pour into his coffers in the meantime. But he's actually quite canny. But in 1205, the amenable pro-King John, Archbishop of Canterbury, Hubert Walter, dies. And John wants someone in the same mould, the Bishop of Norwich. But the monks of Canterbury flexed their electoral body muscle and would not agree, and they chose their sub-prior, Reginald, in a split vote. So the dispute goes to Rome, to Pope Innocent, who runs the election again with his chosen candidate, Stephen Langton, who wins. But probably as a result, the Innocent threatened to excommunicate the Canterbury monks. So perhaps FIFA had a forerunner there. <laughs> so King John said, I'm not having this. And we had us, was been outlined, the six-year standoff between the Pope and King John, where England is under interdict, and King John himself is excommunicated. And if you remember, you've managed, the King has managed to be involved in killing an Archbishop of Canterbury and not get himself excommunicated in the process. So this is really serious stuff. It's hugely serious. It's rather light today. I was trying to think of an analogy. Imagine the king of Saudi Arabia has properly fallen out with the grand imam of Al-Hazar in Cairo and says, no more pilgrimage to Mecca for any Egyptian Muslims. This is very serious stuff. But it's only the threat of the invasion from a holy war from France in 1213 that finally breaks this standoff. John has to surrender the kingdom, becomes a vassal of the pope, Re but reaffirms as well his coronation oath to protect the freedom of the church. This is not the first time that something of this ilk has appeared. There are further promises of that nature in late 1214 and in early 12, uh, 1215. But it's added to the Magna Carta and this is the first description of the English church, even from the documents I've outlined previously. And if we just look at the preamble to the Magna Carta, when it's describing Stephen, the exaltation of the Holy Church and the better ordering of our kingdom at the advice of our Reverend Father Stephen, Archbishop Canterbury, Primate of Orleans, and Cardinal of the Holy Roman Church. So free from what? Yes, I think we can say free from interference by the king. This is a constitutional divide between the role of the state, Akka, the king, and the role of the church. But the question I then asked the people I outlined at the beginning is, because of this particular changing language, free from Rome, probably yes as well, some kind of message. Remember Stephen Langton was born in, in Lincolnshire, he may have studied in, in Paris, but he is English. And Lincolnshire is, the, is later on to be the place of the brown separatists that end up on the Pilgrim Fathers off on the boat to America. So he is English and understands, it seems, that things are different here to how Europe is being governed with the Holy Roman Empire and the King of France. So Langton is no puppet of the Pope. He refuses to publish the papal bull when Innocent basically tries to excommunicate the rebel barons. And he's suspended, as we've heard from the Pope at this time. So once the civil war has basically been avoided by the agreement between the barons and the king, the Articles of the Barons is signed. He happily takes that back in his pocket to Canterbury to make sure he's never accused of having been involved in, in setting off civil war. And then this, chapter one, is added to the Magna Carta. Now, how is that in any way connected with Article 18? And as Julian outlined, it's about freedom of worship. Well, no, Article 18 is actually a deeply constitutional uh, article of the Universal Declaration. 
Now it is in this, in this way, like Magna Carta, again, let's think of the historical context of the Universal Declaration on Human Rights. End of the Second World War, what has been the problem? The problem has been state power gone to the extreme. People's homes being invaded, people being transported off the concentration camps. This is a legal framework that says these rights and these values of individual human beings are inviolable, so inviolable that the state should not interfere and actually has a duty to protect you, ensure you have these freedoms, and if third parties are going to interfere with your human rights under the Universal Declaration, the state has a duty to protect you from third party actors as well as not to do it to you themselves. So this is based on a, that premise of the relationship again between the state, now seen as the nation state obviously in the 20th century, and the individual. So freedom of is actually not just saying it's enough that there's plenty of religion in a country. Well, you can go to Tibet. There's plenty of religion there, isn't there? None of it's free. And so when I was actually in this debate about the constitutional issues here, I went to um, the person I consider to be an expert, the UN Special Rapporteur on International Freedom of Religion or Belief, and was asking him some of these questions. And this is a quote that he's given me permission to use. And he's using it in the, in the context of, of China. It is easy to be deceived about China. The main dividing line does not run between an anti-religious ideology and religion. Today, it runs between state-controlled religious practice on the one hand and autonomous com religious community life without political instrumentalization and infiltration on the other. The fact that there is religion does not mean that freedom of religion or belief is respected. So when we hear that, we can reflect, obviously, firstly, on being grateful that we live in England and the UK today. You can meet as a church tomorrow. You can, as long as you abide by planning and noise, you are free to do so without any state interference. You only have to register as a charity if you want gift aid and that kind of thing. So we have freedom of religion and belief here. But does this mean, what I'm saying from Article 18, that therefore we all have to be America, this separation? Well, no. But there are certain factors that we can see when we look at the breakdown of the relationship between state and religious organisations and how that can correlate to religious persecution. And I've been reading quite a lot of other work, uh, Monica Toff, Daniel Philpott, Timothy Shaw and Mark Jürgensmeyer in this regard. If I give you perhaps a modern day example. Now, here we have on your left, President Morsi democratically elected by about 30% of the Egyptian population. And on the right, that is the Grand Imam from Al-Hazar uh, University, who was here in the UK actually last week. Now, what was actually happening there after Mubarak? Morsi, in the time back that he was in power, basically was leading the Egyptian state. Now, there are different views. So I'm not saying this is the categorical view of history there, and the commentators disagree. But basically, what Egyptians felt was that there was a theocracy. He was pulling power to himself, wanted to bring the nation state by way of democratic means, but into a theocratic model, maybe a bit like Iran, a Sunni version of Iran. And so there were developed a tension with the Grand Imam al-Hazar. Now, the constitution gave the ultimate uh, view of the law to a Sharia understanding of the law. And what it seems ha happened is that Morsi was trying to bring the Grand Imam into the state and bring him in close connection to the state. 
tried to interfere in the elect selection of the next Grand Imam, and they said, Al-Hazar flexed its muscle and said, no, no, you stay over there. And commentators say that was, we were about three to six months away from him basically just removing him and getting his own way and bringing the university in. And this is the leading Sunni theological university in the region. And what would have happened would have been akin to maybe Saudi or Iran and that kind of relationship. And so, but what happened instead was that the second time Egyptians went on the street was basically, they say, reclaiming a notion of the Egyptian state. They wanted chapter one to a certain extent of the Magna Carta, not that link between. And therefore we have al-Sisi. Now again, there's a tension between al-Sisi and the Grand Imam because he's now saying religious education and hate speech, that's something that the state also has something to do with. So again, you have that tension. During that time, though, of Morsi trying to bring the state into a theocratic thing, into a theocratic relationship, things were getting really difficult for people on the street. Women were feeling a pressure to be veiled. The tolerance of Christians was going down. And that was, is one of the symptoms that often correlates to that link between the state and the religious organizations. There are, of course, other examples. So you don't have to dig very far into the history of the Balkans conflict to look at the role of Serbian orthodoxy in potentially saying right, the rising Serbian nationalism of, well, to be Serbian is to be orthodox, is it not? You get that connection developing. Similar situation happening. It's one of the, one of the many, many overlays when you look at the Russian Caucasus. Russian orthodoxy, although Islam predates Russian Orthodoxy on Russian soil wants, apparently, to say to be Russian is to be Orthodox. It is in these situations when you have the bringing together of religious identity, often by a religious organisation to the state, that you have problems of persecution. If you look at what's happening at the moment with the Rohingya Muslims, you have what, whatever form the Buddhist organisations take, a link together between potentially a nation-state and a religious identity that therefore squeezes out anybody else. It is academics' right, probably one of the main reasons why Saudi has spawned so much violence and terrorism. When you have a link between a religious organisation that makes a deal often with the state and says, we're going to be one, and there's vested interests on both sides, the pluralistic space is gone and people splinter off. And if you have any kind of theology of protest that lends itself to any kind of violent protest, you'll then have that situation. So it's really important when we look, these are complex issues when you look at religious persecution, but Article 18 is deeply, deeply constitutional and is saying not that there is one model to run religious organisations in the state, but there are certain cardinal rules you shouldn't cross and this bringing together of a preference of a religious organisation with national identity tends to be the backdrop of a lot of these current situations of persecution. So what I would conclude by saying is that we need a healthy relationship, a chapter one type relationship between religious organisations and the state, a plural public space in which many faiths can argue and debate. And when I just looked boldly at this title as I end, Christianity and the Future of Liberty, what I hope for Christianity and the Future of Liberty when looking at international religious liberty 
is I've been very fortunate when running the um, all-party group. We are supported by black Pentecostal denominations, AOG, uh, Coptic Orthodox, Open Doors Release, Aid to the Church in Need, the, who are the Catholics, CSW, the Anglicans. Because Christianity in the Future of Liberty is liberty for all. It's about us saying Vatican II was right, Dignitas Humanitaire was right, that religious freedom is for all, and Christianity needs to play its full part in ensuring religious freedom for all going forward. Unfortunately, sometimes with individuals, I don't have to scratch often too far below the surface to, f surface to find that actually the Christians care about their own and not necessarily so much about the other. But I want to conclude by saying that it's fascinating and the more I've dug into this, the more the constitutional principles are just so important in ensuring that there is religious freedom for all. Thank you.